All right. Welcome, welcome to all. I uh, hear a reading tonight from Deuteronomy 6, uh, beginning with verses 4 down to verse 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way, And when you lie down and when you rise up, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. O our Father and our God, we thank you that though among men there was found no one who could defeat that enemy, Satan, that indeed you sent your Son into the world for sinners like us, that you sent him bearing human flesh with a real human body and a real human soul, You sent him to us as a brother, touching us in that flesh, substituting for his people, and so indeed, O Lord, triumphing for them. And we find ourselves triumphant in him and resting in him, knowing indeed that he has overcome even the last enemy, death. And so we look forward to his return and the resurrection and living with him forever in the new heavens and new earth. Help us, O God, to keep our eyes upon this great sweep of biblical history and redemption and the future to come. And may our hearts be lifted up to praise him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. In just a few minutes, uh, maybe 10 minutes or 15 minutes after the hour, we'll pass around the the roll and you can check your name off. If uh, you're not on the list, that's fine. Just add your name at the bottom somewhere. Uh, we're welcome. We're glad to have you at the School of Theology. Uh, we have a few uh, housekeeping matters. Uh, one is, is that our next and final meeting for this little short course will be the 12th of December at 7 p.m. because we're meeting on the second and the fourth Wednesdays of each month. Also, the core textbook is available. We've got uh, a handful of copies. Some folks had asked for them, and then uh, uh, we've got a few extra. So you can see uh, Chelsea Math- uh, Campbell at the uh, break. And uh, she can uh, help you with that. Uh, and then finally, we're, we're circulating the attendance sheets. Very good. All right. Our course outline that we're covering, and we've just begun to touch on the first point, is that uh, we're looking at uh, the introduction to theological studies and touching on the issue last time of theology and piety. And then we'll move on this evening to a definition of theology and then its arrangement and its nature. And then finally, we'll come to its context and relevance in our next time together. We ended with the bridge illustration, just pointing out the fact that God, uh, by sending his son into the world, has overcome uh, that moral affront, that uh, offense of holiness, that sinful rebellion of man uh, against uh, our heavenly father. It's a problem that not only did our first father Adam have, but it's a problem that each one of us have. And so Christ is the way and the truth and the life for each one of us. Uh, If we trust in him, we find in him the savior uh, sufficient. Uh, to cover all our sins and reconcile us to God, that we might be in union and communion with him and love the Lord and not only have greater fellowship with him, but come to know him more and serve him better. And part of what we're doing in the School of Theology is trying to encourage that sort of growth in grace, that sanctification. It's a discipleship time together as we gather around the word. But as far as the definition of theology, exactly what is this? What is this enterprise of of, uh, 
getting to know God. There are a number of biblical passages that I'd like us to look at together and then a reading from a famous 19th century theologian that I'd like to give you to encourage you uh, along the way. What I'd like to do, um, just as a methodology in the class, when I put some passages up uh, up on the uh, screen here, then maybe some of you are sword drill people and you can very quickly uh, turn and look for that passage and When I ask somebody to read it, if somebody will cry it out for us, that will be great. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24 speak of knowing God, knowing Him and knowing Him better. Can somebody read that for us? Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Isn't it interesting? God Himself through His prophet, and to be frank, a a fairly extensive prophet of doom, (laughs) tells us, that he delights in us knowing him and understanding him. God, our heavenly father, and it must also be true of his son and also of the Holy Spirit because the three together are the triune God. They share that one undivided uh, uh, divine nature. Uh, They love, they derive great uh, uh, rejoicing from the fact that their people come to know who they are, uh, to love them. Uh, to care about them, to know more about them, to search them out, that we would find out more about God and come to a deeper understanding of Him is something that pleases our Heavenly Father. Hosea 6.6 is another passage. All right, it's not just uh, going through the motions. It's not just an outward obedience that pleases the Lord. Uh, It's those who draw close to Him in heart and in life. It's not just a matter of externals. It's not just a matter of the mind as separated from the rest of human being. God wants us to know him. He wants us to approach him uh, as whole persons. Uh, John 17, the first three verses, as we move to the New Testament, gets very clear. It's interesting that our Lord uh, defines uh, eternal life and fellowship with God as in terms of knowing him, of loving him. It's not just some abstract thing of a decree. It's not some... Um, a lofty theological idea back hidden in God that we can't understand. He's telling us that it's something to do with our life and our lifestyle that we can get to know God, that God wants us to love Him and to know Him both. And then Philippians 3, 7 through 11. Here the apostle makes it clear that his concept of how we know God, the importance of knowing Christ and of knowing God, is not just some external piling up of information. It's not just being able to quote even Bible verses. It's a matter of knowing Him from the heart and from the life, that we love Him from the inner man or from the inner woman. And so we are fascinated with Him. We are devoted to Him. We come to a knowledge of Him that is holistic. And so the study of theology should be the same. The most important point in all of introductory approaches to theological studies is to grasp the fact that you first must know God, that you must love Him, that your heart must be His, your life must be His. You approach Him in that way, in piety, as a believer in Him. It is belief which seeks faith, which seeks greater understanding uh, of our Heavenly Father. We look for Him to break light forth from His Word, not so that we will be more clever than everyone else, not so that we can put other people down for their theological position or lack thereof, not so that we can be haughty towards everyone else in the church as if we're uh, a super Christian and they're only lowly Christians. It's rather uh, that we come to know him 
and to love him in heart and life and therefore be devoted to him uh, holistically in all that we are and all that we do. James Henley Thornwell, one of the old 19th century uh, theologians, put it very well. He was critiquing what's called classically scholasticism, scholastic theology, which is very detailed. Uh, Thomas Aquinas practiced this in the Middle Ages, and there have been others in his train uh, who analyzed and, and sliced and diced every aspect of Christian thought and its relationship to philosophy and its relationship internally, one doctrine to another. And he made this, uh, uh, this observation. For all of its strengths, it had a most objectionable feature, he said. It gave no scope to the play of Christian feeling. It never turned aside to reverence, to worship, or to adore. It exhibited truth nakedly and baldly, in its objective reality, without any reference to the subjective conditions under the influence of the Spirit that it was truth, that truth was calculated to produce. It was a dry digest, he says. A science of religion, of the heart and life, it could never rightly be called. Truth must be exhibited, he contrasted, warmly, glowing from the fullness of the Christian heart, it must not nakedly be truth, but truth according to godliness. And here's our emphasis on piety. We come seeking to know God better, not just in our minds, but with our lives. We must know it because it has been taught by the Spirit and that we can feel the Spirit's power. The living consciousness of its preciousness and sweetness and glory is absolutely essential to save it from a frozen formalism. Yes, there must, be let, there must be method, but that's like a skeleton. You need not only method, you also need life. That uh, it's a noble organism, this study of theology. Theology is a science of religion, a system of doctrine and its logical connection and dependence when spiritually discerned produces true piety. So that's what we'll be seeking here. First of all, to love the Lord with our whole hearts and as we love Him, to approach Him to understand what, what it's like to know Him better because He is the God of Scripture and has spoken to us, given us revelation, general and special, uh, inscripturated part of that special revelation, revealed to us more about Himself in the Word. Also, it's... It's important for us to recognize not just dry facts about God and what His attributes are like. You can be a pagan and make a long, detailed list and write a textbook on the attributes of God. But if you know that God that you're writing about, if you love Him and care for Him, then you're writing not just about something that's very afar off from you, you're writing about something that's very close and that touches you in, in, in the deepest recesses of who, who you are. And that God is a saving God who makes a difference in your life. And so His Holy Spirit transforms, transforms you after the image of His Son. And so the doctrine of God and the doctrine of the Trinity are important things to understand. And they're relevant to our Christian living. They provide a basis for the rest of Christian thought. God has made the world. He's a triune God who's made the world. And so it, it bears some marks. It bears some reminders of His triune nature. The heavens declare for us the glory of God. Uh, we, uh, we walk out in a Texas rain and we learn what power is all about as uh, these giant-sized uh, drops of rain come crashing down upon us and we realize that God is providing that rain for the just and the unjust so they both may live. 
our Heavenly Father uh, has created the world and created us in His image. And so we can relate to Him and have fellowship with Him. He has fellowship in Himself. And He's kind enough to reach out and have fellowship with us. But you can know that kind of in the abstract, or you can know that in the excitement, in the appreciation, in the doxological response and praise to God for who He is. The same thing is true about studying anthropology or man. You can know what the Bible teaches about man, both in his unfallen state of innocence in the Garden of Eden and in the fallen world in which we live today. You can know man in his redemptive uh, relationship to uh, Christ. And you can know man as he will be in the new heavens and new earth, established in righteousness. You can know him in these ways from the scriptures. But when you study the doctrine of sin, do you feel your own sin and the guilt and weight of it? When you study heaven to come and that we'll be established in righteousness and we will see Jesus Christ and live with Him forever, are you just writing about that? Or is that something that helps you get up in the morning and helps define how you live and relate to other people each day? Thornwell's making a very important point here that it's not just a dead skeleton or a dry digest. It has to be filled with bone and sinews. There has to be life to it and fellowship with our God. The same thing could be true about Christology. Do you study abstractly guilt and punishment and the cross and different models of the atonement? Or do you study that one who gave his life that you might live? That he gave his life that you might live. That's where the difference lies. At at Christmas, when we celebrate the person of Christ, are we just kind of talking about a little baby lying in a manger, very sentimental, cute and cuddly? I got news for you. We got some cute and cuddly ones back in the nursery right now. And they're great. But none of them is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, uh, who takes away the sins of the world. The fact that God took on flesh and even became so humble humbly to us as to take on uh, human flesh in its most vulnerable and its most needy form is a great testimony to us. And we should feel the impact of that. We should love the church, not just study about her, not just analyze how the New Testament and the whole of the Scriptures teach she should be arranged, what her offices are, what the functions of those offices are, but we should love her. She's the bride of Christ. As you study the church, do you love the church because you love Christ? Or is the church a fairly dangerous place where you've been burned? You want to take two steps back and maybe you aren't sure of this at all. We need the Holy Spirit. We need God to help us to study Him uh, from a fount of true Christian piety. Theology is all about a knowledge of God that animates the soul. Now, can can, can we get the lights turned down just for a second, Fred? I want you all to be able to see each one of these uh, pictures up here. Now, the first is uh, the famous picture of, of God reaching out, of creation. God reaching out and touching the finger of Adam, who he's created, giving him life. Nice symbolic form. Uh, God doesn't look like that. Betcha Adam didn't look like that. Uh, the description in the scriptures in Genesis uh, chapters 2 and 3 is a little different than this, but uh, this is a nice uh, artist rendition. And I've made it small enough that we don't have to take offense. But the point here is, is that it's not just knowing about God creating. You know, it's a fairly personal thing for Adam. God created him. What a difference that made in his life and makes in our lives. Uh, The portrait uh, just below is a 
is a good old-fashioned Eastern Orthodox icon of the three angels who appear uh, at the uh, Oaks of Mamre and sit there with uh, Abraham and dine with him. And, and uh, one of them is the angel of the Lord, who fairly soon into the text we realize is, is God himself somehow taking on a form. And the, and the Eastern Church has always taken this as the three persons of the Trinity being depicted by these three angels. Don't know that that's true, but it's a very interest, interesting speculative idea. But the point here is that it's the triune God that we relate to, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the study of theology is personal, and uh, therefore we need to be personally engaged with God as we study who he is, what he's like. I promised in the email today Charlton Heston, and there he is in living color, playing Moses, separating the uh, Red Sea there. The, the, uh, he's uh, doing a great miracle. You can only see the uh, light effects in the back. But uh, God reveals himself in a way as our Savior, as the Savior of Israel, the Savior of his people, and he, he reveals that in a, in a way that involves both word and act. He does great things for us. Uh, the portrait right below is from the 14th century, and it's from a French work, and it shows... Uh, the bride of Christ is depicted there with a crown of glory on her head, kissing his cheek from behind, I think. Yes, all very proper. And uh, uh, the, uh, the point here is that God uh, calls a church to himself as a blessing uh, and to honor and glorify his son. Uh, we see Rembrandt's uh, uh, Paul there in the top right, and then we see the picture of uh, piety just below him as a Christian believer, is giving thanks to God for his daily bread and also is having his time of devotionals as his Bible is sitting there and he's been reading the Apostle Paul. God speaks to us and teaches us what he is like through his word and our study of this is to know him in a way that delights and animates and gives life to soul and life. We can have the lights again. Thank you. And there are a whole set of topics that we have to cover. Um, the classic loci in theology, loci being the Latin word for places, the classic places in theology are Scripture, God, man, Christ, salvation, the church, and last things. These places or topics... Um, I guess it was Patrick, St. Patrick, who wrote his book, Patrick's Places, that uh, first gave coinage to this term, loci. As you're studying theology in an organized or systematic way, uh, you don't study from Genesis to Revelation, uh, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That's what they do in the biblical studies department. They march you through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. And then you talk about it. And they march you through uh, the historical books and the poetic books and the prophetic books and through the Gospels and through the epistles and through the general books at the end of the New Testament. And they will take you verse by verse, line by line. That's what they do in the Old Testament and New Testament department, and that's a good thing to do. But in systematic theology, what we do is go to the whole of the Bible and ask the question, what does the Bible teach about... And then we go down one topic after another and go through, go through all of the scriptures. What does the Bible teach about God? What does the Bible teach about Christ? What does the Bible teach about the church and salvation and last things? You rummage through all of the scriptures, old and new, 
from beginning to end. And you organize it in a logical, synthetic fashion. You connect these different parts together, beginning with the clearer statements in Scripture and then moving to the less clear, that light might shed light, uh, uh, that clearer passages might shed light on less clear passages. And so the place you start is with the topic of what's called classically prolegomena, the doctrine of Scripture and Revelation. What does the Bible say about God speaking to us and about his word written? Because that's a specialized form of that. And then theology proper. That is, what does the Bible teach about God? Now, that includes the attributes of God, but it also includes the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the relations internally between the three of them and their relationship to us on the outside. Um, the covenant of redemption between the three persons of the Trinity, how, how they made uh, settled uh, within themselves about what they would do with regard to cre- pre- uh, 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 decreeing and also creating and governing by their providence. Uh, and anthropology, here we get these long-worded uh, ology words. Those $10 words, as one of my children used to say. Uh, anthropology, the doctrine of man. Christology, the doctrine of Christ. Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Eschatology, the doctrine of last things. And so we'll throw both sets, the, the normal English words and also the specialized English words around uh, in our studies together in the School of Theology as we rummage through each one of these topics, progressively going through them. There, there you have the full curriculum. After this little introductory study, we begin uh, with the doctrine of Scripture. And we'll move through that and then go on to God and man, etc. But this kind of linear development, Scripture, God, man, Christ, salvation, the church and last things, that linear presentation or study is not the only way you can do theology. Let me just also say an aside. These are broad topics, uh, these different areas. So, for example, the doctrine of sin fits in under anthropology because you have to study man in a state of innocence, but also man in a state of fallenness. And the sacraments and worship fall under the doctrine of the church. But, hold it, now doesn't salvation have something to do with sin? And doesn't sanctification and growth in grace have something to do with the sacraments? So you feel a little tension here as you pick a particular topic and you feel pulled in more than one direction. What that does is let you know that your, your paradigm, your way of just linearly thinking about this, is not all there is to it. It's like a cake. I was sharing with somebody the other day that I, um, I didn't remember each one of the moonshots, the Apollo moonshots. I did not remember who the astronauts were and what numbers they were and which one they took that moon buggy on and that kind of thing. I didn't remember all of that. But I was so high when, when they, they went to the moon first. And I, but I do remember all of the moon cakes that my mother made. She made a special moon cake for every space shot. And uh, I can remember, you know, Apollo 13, the great movie. What, what I remember about Apollo 13 was, oh, no, does this mean mom's not going to make a cake? Because <laughs> they didn't get there. <laughs> you know, and when you have a layer cake, what does a layer cake look like? Well, that depends on how you slice it. You know, if you don't slice it, it's this round, holistic thing with all sort of gooey icing on it. But if you say, well, what is it like? Show me that it's a layer cake. What does that mean? And somebody cuts it this way, 
right through the middle of one of the cakey parts, and you lift it apart and you just see cake. But if you cut it the other way, you see the layers of cake and all that gooey stuff between. So how you slice it can make a difference for how much you understand about it. And uh, something complicated like theology, there are a number of different slices that you can make through that hole to help you understand. One of them is this linear slice. That's just a direct, straight down. Scripture, God, man, Christ, salvation, eschatology, ecclesiology. But there's another way that you could organize this topic. Because the one doctrine which most profoundly touches everything else is Christology. I mean, what is salvation if it's not the application of the work of Christ to the life of sinners like us? And what is the church if it's not the bride of Christ? And what is eschatology if it's not the return of Christ? And who is the author of the scriptures? Okay, Moses and Paul and Matthew, but they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. And who is it that promised that he would uh, send the Holy Spirit and that he would lead them into all truth? Who was it? It was Jesus. It was Christ. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, if you want to know what God is like, the Father, where do we go? We go to the Son to know. And who is it that was the God-man? Christ. And so the whole study of theology is uh, more tantalizing, more informing, um, more structurally striking if you do it kind of as a wheel. And recognize that no matter what topic you're studying, you need to figure out what, what quadrant of the universe that you're in. Now, how many of you are fans of the old Star Trek series of one sort or another? You see, you have to know whether you're in the Alpha Quadrant or the Delta Quadrant. It makes a really big difference. And what touches or butts up against it? The interconnectedness of the loci is very important. And it's not just Christology that's so important. Notice that we have Scripture there at the top. Actually, as wheels work, we could kind of roll the wheel half a turn, and Scripture would be on the bottom. Now, that seems insulting, so I didn't do it. But it would help communicate that it's foundational and that everything else rests upon it. I actually was tempted to try to put Scripture as kind of the rim all the way around, but, you know, I couldn't figure out how to get the paint program to do that, so I didn't, I didn't make that drawing. Christology, Christ, the Incarnation, an absolutely unique point in theology. The Trinity, doctrine of God, Three in one, three persons, one essence. That is a unique Christian doctrine. And so now we begin to see why slices at different angles through the whole can be helpful. Christology being central, everything being based upon God's revelation to us in prolegomena in Scripture, we study that, and then also the uniqueness of the Trinity and of the Incarnation. The study of theology in its arrangement and structure can be enlightening. These two utterly unique loci need to be kind of highlighted in our thinking, though. The first is the Trinity. You know, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, the Nicene-Constantinopolitan doctrine of the Trinity, the historic Christian doctrine of the Trinity, is a precious thing. It's, it's actually worth dying for. 
somebody pulls a, pulls a gun on you and holds it to your head and says, deny the Trinity, you know, your answer should be either no or the blessed Trinity. Then they pull the trigger. The point here is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three persons, and they share that one central divine essence, deity. And it's not shared in a way so that the Father's only one-third deity, and the Spirit's only one-third deity, and the Son's only one-third deity. They all three possess all of the divine nature. And it's not even like the three amigos. You know, the three guys who show up and they all look alike, and one of them has a little name tag on, Father. The other one says Son. The other one says Holy Spirit. No. There are three persons, but they all... It's not that they just happen to be alike. They all possess that divine nature. And there is no other religion, there's no other man-made religion which gets the doctrine of the Trinity right. It is utterly unique uh, as uh, theological systems go. And therefore, that's a sui genus. It's an unusual... It's an important, it's a fountainhead point in our study of theology. No matter what issue you're dealing with in your personal Christian walk, no matter what topic is being preached about in your church next Sunday, uh, no matter what uh, chapter of the Bible you happen to be on in your daily reading plan, the triune God is relevant to each one of those things. And I hope that through the school of theology you will learn to ask the question, now, how does this relate to the Trinity? And what does this say about the Trinity? And what does the Trinity say about that? You know the old adage that husbands and wives, as they get older, begin to look like one another. Actually, my wife and I have a... Um, we have an ongoing discussion about this. Um, husbands and wives are one thing, but we always bring dogs into it. You know, maybe you look more like your puppy. I don't know. Whichever one you pet more begins to look like you. But the fact is, is that husbands and wives, as they get older, they seem to look, uh, the, the two are different, but yet they seem to come closer and closer and closer together. Isn't that interesting? Well, in the same way with the triune God, as we get to know this triune God, that's three persons in relationship, one unity together, but yet the, the plurality of relationship, the relationships that we have are transformed by that. Um, how do you learn to relate to someone else? What's the basis of your relating to someone else? Well, it all starts with, you know, a mom and her child. And then dad is introduced, and the world gets more complicated. And then there are rival brother, uh, siblings, brothers and sisters, and things get very complicated. But all the way through, it's based upon that simple, fundamental, yet utterly profound pattern of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit united together, but relating to one another on the basis of their nature. And so we, bearing the image of God, do the same. We relate to one another. And how we relate to one another says something about God. And so, therefore, the way that I treat you and the way you treat me is not just a private contractual matter between us. We can draw, we can hire all the lawyers from downtown Houston we want to. And they can draw up all the pages that they want. And that's not going to make any difference. It's not going to overturn the morality of the fact that you and I have no right to treat each other in a way that violates the fact that we're made in the image of God. And therefore, that what we do says something about Him innately. And we have responsibilities to Him. We can't write Him out of the contract and act like He doesn't exist. 
And there's that second unique point, the incarnation. One person in two natures. Now, I have to confess to you that this afternoon, I took a, this morning, I took a little ribbing about this, this chart. I, am, I was so proud of this chart. And uh, Pastor Fred Greco walked in and he said, that looks like a scientific thing. And I said, yes, very proudly. And he said, nobody's going to understand that. <laughs> so what I'll do is draw a very simple, simple, simple uh, diagram of it for you here. On the level of person, there's Christ. And he, uh, he possesses a divine nature. And at the incarnation, he adds to himself a human nature. That is a human body and a human soul. And our human bodies through our ears hear the harp, and that means it's time for me to stop. And the human body then transmits that to the human soul, and so we, with our minds, perceive that it's time to stop. We have a real human uh, furniture, real human substance here. And Christ added that to himself in the incarnation. This happens by the work of the Holy Spirit, who... uh, uh, holds the incarnation together. But the point here is, is that there are two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. Two natures, but there's one person, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And before the incarnation, he is without human, human nature. After the incarnation, he adds that to himself, so he has it. And he has a real human mind, a real human will, as well as a real human body and a real human soul. And so he relates to us as a brother. This is a unique thing. No other religion has this proper kind of incarnational relationship where God becomes man, one with us, in fellowship with us, so that we can be substituted for by him and that we always have a priest who understands us and relates to us as a brother. All right, well, let's take a... uh, Ten-minute break, is that what we said? Let's take a ten-minute break, and then we'll come back together. It's good to be back here with you all. I have to tell you, I just, I love sitting here listening to Duncan. He is amazing. As you know, it's a long-standing tradition here at Christ Church to begin each section of teaching with review. I'm not going to review what Duncan just said. I assume you heard all that. Uh, But when we were together last time, we spent some time in the sort of the second half of our our teaching time uh, talking about all sorts of things, really. Uh, But I wanted to ask you, first of all, I wanted to remind you of something very important, just so we we are all on the same page. I know there are a few new folks here tonight, so let me just say this one more time for those of you who are either uh, just um, joining us this week or have forgotten what you heard two weeks ago. This portion of the class is really meant to be much more sort of interactive, kind of discussion-based. So, you know, I'll ask you questions. Go ahead and answer them. Uh, Feel free to. In fact, this will go much better if you don't sit there in stone-cold silence. This will actually be more enjoyable for all of us, and it will make my life so much easier. Uh, And that's really why we're all here, is to make my life easier. (laughs) So uh, I want to encourage you, don't don't be shy. Feel free to. to, And and if you have questions, hey, throw your hand up. We're here to kind of work through these things. So... Uh, I, I know I have, look, three pages of notes here. I could go all night if you want me to, uh, but I want to talk about what we need to talk about to kind of you know, help cement these things in our minds. So uh, do feel free to you know, get involved uh, on this side here. So let me ask you just by way of review then, if somebody were to say to you something like the following, look, um, 
you know, I have my prayer time, I have my quiet time every morning. I don't need to study theology. I, I have my, you know, I'm doing my thing with God. How do you, how would you, knowing what we've talked about here the last, this week and last week, what would you say to such a person? What do you think? That's a good point. How do you even know what that thing is unless you've first gone through Scripture to know? Actually, I think Duncan did a great job with that this week. We're commanded, in fact, to know God. And now certainly an aspect of that is that sort of that time of meditation and devotion and prayer. Obviously, we do that. Uh, but if you think that's all that there is, you're, you're missing an important part of your relationship with Christ. Let me ask you, if you have a Bible with you, to turn to it. And if you have your, uh, your Jeffrey book, Bite-Sized Theology, you might want to pull that out too. We'll look at a few passages from there. Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles, though, to uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. And we're going to start at verse 11. And if you've, if you've read the, uh, you know, there was an assignment. I know some of you who are new this week are thinking, what, I missed the first assignment? Well, you did, yes. The assignment was just the first two chapters of this little book, which isn't much. You can handle it. But Jeffrey even references this section from Hebrews chapter 5. Let's look at it together. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. The author writes, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For, through, for, sorry, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I'm assuming that you've all read that passage probably many times, in fact. But let me ask you to think about this, and, and, and let's talk about it for a moment. What is the author of Hebrews here? What do you think he means by milk And what does he mean by solid food? I mean, let's get a handle on those two concepts. Obviously, they're metaphorical. He's not talking about, you know, chugging back the white stuff. So what is spiritual milk in this sense? I think I understand what you're saying, but what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think exactly. And I think part of how we know this to be true is that the author here even kind of gives us a little tip. He refers to them as children, right? So how would you, how would you teach a child? Now, now he goes on to say, we'll talk about this in a moment. He goes on to point out that, I mean, Jeffrey does, these aren't necessarily easy doctrines. They're very important, in fact. But the way you present them to a child, for example, might be quite different than the way you present them to somebody more mature, more learned, more experienced. That sort of, in a way, kind of gets at what solid food consists of, right? I mean, obviously, there's kind of a metaphor here of who among us really lives on milk? Infants live on milk, right? (laughs) And so the rest of us ought to be living on solid food. Uh, Obviously, the admonition here is, you know, shame on you. You aren't on the solid food yet. You ought to be. You should be past this stage. Well, we've got to back up. Got to give you the milk because that's what what you seem to need. In the Jeffrey book, turn with me to page uh, 10, which is in that first section uh, called the ABC, ABC of the Christian Faith. And I'm looking uh, maybe about five or six lines from the top. He says, in the same way, 
The ABC of the faith has to be mastered if Christians are to grow spiritually. He says, now this is the important part here, we will not mature merely by reading the spiritual experiences of others, important though these are. Doctrine, he says, see that word there? Doctrine is simply a word to describe what the Bible teaches and no believer should be afraid to grapple with it. I don't know about you, but when I was reading through that and I'm thinking, doctrine, what? Nobody should be afraid to grapple with it. Why might we be afraid? I mean, he seems to, there seems to be an assumption there, right? That some people might be put off by the notion of studying doctrine. Isn't this, in fact, what Duncan talks about when he talks about the wheel and, you know, sort of the, you know, sort of the, the Christ-centered approach to theology? We're talking about theology, doctrine. We're studying it here for the next who knows how long, months, years, as long as you'll have us. It's true. It's, it's, you're right. We can talk about absolutes, right? But you're right. When it comes to doctrine, now we're actually giving that flesh. That's right. Now, let me ask the rest of you. Are, are, are Steve and I overstating the matter, perhaps? Is doctrine off-putting? I, I just said it like it's true, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. That can get kind of personal sometimes, can't it? Like, you know, well, but, but that thing, I like doing that, or, or this is an important, I, I love this part of my life. You mean I can't do that anymore? Or, or I've always thought this was true, I assumed this, but, but no, actually that's mistaken, and you must really direct your attention elsewhere. That's hard to deal with sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think this is I think this is just a, a natural consequence of the postmodern age we live in where anything of any importance, God, whatever, that's something that is felt, experienced. In fact, there's a very famous some of you are perhaps too young or too old to know what I'm talking about. Uh, but there was a famous sort of Bible study series called Experiencing God. And what was the point here? We're not studying. We're not acquiring doctrine. We're not pursuing theology. We're feeling. We're experiencing. We're emoting. Now, let me just hasten to add. There's nothing wrong with emotion, right? I don't think that's a bad thing at all. But if that is all of your experience with Scripture and with Christ, you are missing out on a whole lot. But you're right. This is, this is our age. This is what we live in. This is, this is what's valued, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That's a good point. We've seen, you know, the infant just sits in the crib, red, angry about what? Who knows? Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's a good thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It seems to me that there's a certain amount of confusion within 
Oh, sure. Some people just... It's too confusing, too complicated. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of is a mess, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, anywhere you have two people together, even if they're both Christians, you're likely to have disagreement, right? But that doesn't let us off the hook, right? That the Bible doesn't say no God unless it becomes hard or, you know, combative or, you know, maybe a little unpleasant for some. No, we're just to know him, right? We're to press ahead. And even if that means we have to sort of work through differences with brothers and sisters, well, then we do that. Well, we ought to anyway. Turn with me to page 11, just right across the, the binding there. Still following on this same sort of topic here, look at that last paragraph at the bottom of page 11. It starts out like this. There are not two sets of doctrines in the Bible, one called milk and the other called meat. I love this passage. One for new believers and the other for more mature saints. These books are for you, those books are for them, or something like that. There is only one body of truth, and all believers, young or old, in faith, need it all. What do you think he means by that? You certainly can, yeah. Anything that, anything that Dr. Rankin says is completely on the table. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. And so when you do cut the cake the other way, you see, but maybe not all at once. It's not revealed to us all at once. I think it's part of what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Sure. It's it's the most intimate, deepest form of knowledge one could possess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's just the beginning, right? So if you are loving God, you want to know about him. No, precisely, yeah. And so if, if for many of you, if somebody were to ask you, hey, do you know Bob Stacy? You'd probably say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know him. But let me tell you, there's a woman in this room right now, my wife sitting right over there, who knows me like none of you know me. Really, like I'm glad that nobody else knows me. <laughs> she has some dirt, let's say. But... But there's, this is exactly what you're saying, right? So, and that's, I think that's the way Scripture uses that word. I'm pretty confident because it's, that same word is used in other contexts to, uh, to really apply to the most intimate forms. So it's not just head knowledge we're talking about here, right? It's not just, you know, I can name the ten top characteristics of God. It's, it's intimate knowledge. On the, uh, the, the, the example that we have 
is marriage. But even that is somewhat superficial compared to how we are to know God. So I'm glad you mentioned that. That's a good one. Flip over to page 13. So we're just flying through the book. Isn't this great? We're on, page, we're on, we're on section two now, entitled Big Words. And it's just full of words. Look at right, th- start right at the beginning. First sentence. Some Christians, he says, think of doctrine as being big words. Words they can hardly spell, let alone understand. I don't, I won't ask for a show of hands, but do any of you feel that way? That when you think about theology or doctrine, it's, oh, it's complicated. I don't get into that because it's just kind of hard. Or, or you've, you've only come here with the greatest of trepidation in your heart thinking, oh, but they're going to give me the big words and, and then I'm going to have to learn them and I don't want to learn them and it's going to be hard. And, well, look at what he says here. He says, they think of words like propitiation. It's even hard to say, let alone spell or no. Words like propitiation and justification as being well beyond the understanding of ordinary Christians. He goes on. Uh, it is true that these are big words. The truths they express are gigantic in their importance and massive in their place at the heart of the Christian faith. But look what he says here. But it ought not to be beyond the ability of most believers to understand them. So what does that mean in terms of our obligation to knowing God? I can vouch for it, yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, you know, actually, I love the way Jeffrey puts it in this chapter. You've got to have a vocabulary to talk about these things, right? Uh, the doctrines are critically important. Whatever you call it, whatever the name, however many syllables the name has, you have to know it. And it is. It's knowable. You don't have to be a genius. You might not know what the word justification means, but you could understand what it means to be made right with God and stand before him. That's, you could learn that. Now, I don't know how many of you, any of you play golf I hope not. It's, t- it's a terrible sport to me. <laughs> this is a common experience, I think, actually. Why is it that if you manage to you know, knock the ball into the hole with one fewer shot than the guy who made the course thought you should be able to do it in, we call it a birdie? Just says, I, know what, I think I know what a bird is. I, my child will sometimes use the term birdie, talking about little birds, I guess. You understand what I'm saying? That why would that word mean that thing? It just seems to have no relationship whatsoever. But golfers all know, right? Now, that they have to go through, they had to learn it, right? They had to, they had to play some. They had to talk with others who like this sort of, they find each other. They always find each other. And they have these discussions and begin to learn. And, but it's a process, right? Nobody, nobody's born knowing what a birdie is. I don't think. But an eagle is better. I know that. <laughs> Much better, right, yeah. 
And this is true, as Jeffrey points out. It's true in, in, in any kind of human endeavor. Whatever you do, if your thing is, you know, you love working on your car. Maybe you love playing words with friends. There are, there's a vocabulary that goes with anything we do. So, okay, there's a vocabulary that goes with faith, with theology. And maybe that vocabulary is challenging, but it doesn't make it any less of an obligation for us to understand what's beneath that. I might not know what a birdie is, but I can count to three, and I can figure out if I got the shots there under three or not, right? Same sort of thing applies here. And this is, this is all that Jeffrey's sort of saying in this, this section here on, on the big words. Don't be put off by the big words. We're going to use some. Duncan used some earlier. Did you catch that? I don't know if you saw that. Uh, we're going to keep using them, but you know what? You can master this. This is not actually, this is not beyond the, the, the realm of possibility. Sure. And, and the, of course, the point is, if you might not know the word, right? But you've got to know the principle. And in fact, I can assure you, I'll bet just about all of you here in this room do know the principle. Now, whether you could sort of articulate it in a way that would, you know, meet the requirements of a seminary professor uh, on a final exam, I don't know about that. I'm not sure that I could do that either. But, but I know that if you're a believer, you come to a knowledge of what it means to be justified and so many other things. And so we're going to spend some time here over the next weeks and months doing some of that. This is a good thing. Uh, but don't be put off by it. Understanding, we live in a culture that does not value such things typically, right? These are, these are not important doctrines as far as they're. In fact, that word doctrine is itself a problem. But that's okay. We, we're going to do it anyway. I was um, recently reading an article, not, not in relationship to preparing for tonight's class, but something else I was reading. And it showed, uh, this article discussed the results of a, of a recent uh, poll of Americans that showed the, depending on how you ask the question, I suppose you get different answers maybe, but the fastest growing segment of belief in America, according to this poll, was uh, people who describe themselves as spiritual but unaffiliated. That is to say, the fastest growing, it's up to about 20% of Americans, depending on who you ask, 20% at least, who say, well, I believe in God, but I don't believe in any particular religion or church or doctrine. You see what I'm getting at here, right? Uh, we are really kind of, as a culture, moving. Now, that, by the way, that 20% was about zero about a generation ago. So it's almost a brand new thing. It was, just, it was as rare as can be, and now it's a fifth of the population and growing fast. And, and I tell you, Look inside some of our churches. I don't think we have this problem necessarily here at Christ Church, but look around our country. Our churches are full of people who, okay, I believe in God, but what kind of doctrine does my church teach? Well, it doesn't really teach anything. And so it's very comfortable for me to sit in the, you know, in the chairs and you know, kind of sing some songs and do a little praying and feel good after an you know, hour on Sunday. And there, I, I believe. See, this is, I've, I've done my bit. And that's a very common thing. Not a good thing. Right? And it doesn't fulfill the commandment to know God. I mean, this is kind of our point here. This gets to something then, I mean, this is all has a purpose. And so I, I warn you, I'm not, I'm not turning this into a class on apologetics. I'm going to say this now in Duncan's hearing so he knows that I'm not going astray. Uh, certainly you don't want to know anything about apologetics, right? But, but it helps us, I think, to understand sort of our, our purposes here. I'm going to say something. If you think this is false, tell me. What you believe largely determines what you do. 
you understand what I mean by that? It, it might be a, pardon me? I was about to say the same thing. It's possible the other way around could also work, right? That is to say, doing certain things repeatedly can change or influence what you believe as well, right? I think that's certainly the, certainly the case. But here's just, the only thing I want us to think about is this. Why would we, as Duncan already said, why would we want to go to all of the labor, all of the effort to know God better? Because it really does have an impact on our lives. This is, it literally is not simply head knowledge. Head knowledge, by the way, I'm a professor. I, I kind of like head knowledge. It's kinda, I trade, I deal in it. This is sort of an you know, important part of my life. Uh, nevertheless, beyond that, what you learn, what you know, what you believe about your God, your creator, your maker, your savior, is going to have a big, whether you even realize it or not, it's going to have a big influence in the kinds of things you do with your life. And it ought to. That's a good thing. I'm, I'll, just, I'll probably just state an obvious fact. I hope I'm not insulting anybody's intelligence here. But again, we live in a culture where often we try to separate these things and put them into compartments. I brought along something. I just want to read this to you. This is from a book called Total Truth by uh, Nancy Piercy, who is, uh, ah, God, God is a great God. He, she's now my colleague at Houston Baptist University. This is awesome. But um, I want to read you just a little short sort of little story here from the, from a, uh, the opening chapter of this book, a little narrative uh, about a, a woman named Sarah. And this is, what, this is what Nancy writes. She says, A fashionably dressed college student stepped into the counselor's office, tossing her head in an attempt at bravado. Sarah recognized the type. The planned parenthood clinic where she worked often attracted students from the elite university nearby, and most were wealthy, privileged, and self-confident. Please sit down. I have the results of your test. And, well, you're pregnant, Sarah said. The young woman nodded and grimaced. I kind of thought so. Have you thought about what you're going to do, Sarah asked. The answer was quick and sure. I want an abortion. Well, let's go over your options first, Sarah said. It's important for you to think through all the possibilities before you leave here today. Now, Nancy writes, sometimes the young women sitting in her office would grow impatient, even hostile. They were already convinced that there were no other viable options. After years of experience in her profession, however, Sarah knew that women who have abortions are often haunted afterward. She hoped to help the students consider the impact of ab that abortion might have in years, the years to come, so they would make an informed decision. If they balked, she fell back on protocol. This is my job. I have to do it. Why did Sarah care? Because she was a practicing Christian. And as she explained to me many years later, she thought that's what being a believer meant, showing compassion to women who were considering abortion. The reason that this story is even in the book at all, do you see the sort of the jarring juxtaposition there? She works in an abortion clinic, talking to women about their options, helping them maybe feel better. But at the end of the day, what is she doing? I mean, think about this. She is facilitating a set of choices that are really quite sinister. And how is a, she's a believer. She goes to church on Sunday. Don't get me wrong. This is not somebody who, no, she's, she checks that box in her life. But how can she put these two things side by side and live a coherent life that way? I don't think you can, actually. It's beside the point. She did. For years, she did. She did it in the same way that so many of the people in our culture do now. She compartmentalizes, puts things in different sections of her life. And this is a very common thing we see today. Uh, we often see Christians who can, on Sunday, they can, they can sing their praise songs good and loud. 
They can pray with great earnestness. They can read the scripture and, and, and even enjoy that. And then Monday morning, they can go to work and engage in the most unethical of business practices. They can cheat on their income taxes. They can sleep with their boyfriends and girlfriends all week long. I mean, they can do almost anything because they've compartmentalized. They've separated these two things in their lives. Have any of you ever met or know of people like this? this is, I don't think this is an uncommon experience, unfortunately. Why do you think this happens? I mean, this is really a, it's kind of an important question for us. I'm not accusing anybody in the room, by the way. I'm sure you're all fine. But I'm just thinking generally speaking. Why do – you know, so we're talking about Christians here. I, I, unbelievers do all sorts of crazy things. We know that. I'm talking about believers who would profess belief in Jesus Christ and yet are able to, in their lives, do all sorts of things, engage in all sorts of practices and behaviors – that uh, not even the borderline stuff, the stuff that's clearly across the line. How does this happen? How does this work? Uh, fundamentally, right? That's, that's, that seems to be the case, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you put your finger on something very important there, that notion of okay, if, our, if our churches don't teach properly, then how can we ever expect people to sort of apply properly, right? Yeah, sin's not new. It's been around, hasn't it? Always that temptation. Yeah. In our office, we have a totally different social environment at church. And so we do at church uh, perhaps the things that we think we need to do there to fit in. And in the office, we do something else that we think we need to do there to fit in. And that's, that's, a, that's a temptation that's hard to get around sometimes, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People do. At universities all over the world, they do it, right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's huge. Mm-hmm. That's right. At the, at the end of the day, it's not. You're right.
Sure, that's an easy one. You're right. So I can just sort of, you know, I can explain my behavior away as it's not bothering anybody, it's not harmful. That's right. So exactly. That's, that's, I'm glad you said this. Why do we have the separate boxes? Well, because I can put God in that box, right? My obligations to him are now confined within that. And here's the beauty of it. Boy, I get to control how big that box is and how much of my life it takes up and exactly how much of God I actually even put in there, right? So it, it's, you're right. It's ultimately about exerting control. Now, you know, when it comes to culture, you know, there are big sort of tides that kind of come and go and... Uh, and recur sometimes even. But I'm going to put a word up here. It's not a, it's not a really big word, maybe a medium-sized word. So I think you can put up with this. We live in a very dualistic culture. That is to say, we are a culture that <coughs> is almost sort of absorbed in dualism. Does anybody know what we mean by the word dualism? That's right. So it, it, it not just... Obviously, it implies two of something, right? But we're talking about sort of competing fundamental beliefs, not just sort of two things, but two foundations even, if it were, which hardly seems possible, right? I live in a house. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's just the one foundation. I think it would be odd to have two, in fact. It might not even work, practically. But we live in a culture that is a dualistic culture. That's to say that, that we do sort of separate things. Even in the church, now, again, anything we say, we can write off if you want. I don't care. You know, like what Mitt Romney said about the 47%. I don't care about those people. Whatever about the unbelievers. Even in the church, this is true. Maybe more so in the church. I'm going to say this carefully here because we've got a couple of ministers present. How many times do you hear people talk about folks going into the ministry? And that's like the holy choice. And, or you can have a secular job. Now, I'm not about to say don't go into the ministry. Obviously, that'd be ridiculous. We need, we need people whose job it is to preach Christ and teach us. That's a very important thing. But, but are we, the rest of us then, sort of off the hook for the ministering part? That they do the spiritual stuff and we'll do the secular stuff. Obvi- now, again, intellectually, obviously that's untrue. But many people, many Christians, many of us live our lives as though it is true. I'm saying what we actually do, what we actually do with our lives suggests they are quite different, in fact, and, and don't even necessarily touch each other. You know, God bless Fred Greco for, for being a spiritual guy, taking care of that for us, when, in fact, we all have the obligation. It's part of this dualism that is very prominent in our country. I want to just take a few moments here. We have just a couple minutes left. I want to talk about, um, I put a little, a little house on the board. Isn't this exciting? Y'all know, at least you probably have heard of Francis Schaeffer, right? Uh, Schaeffer, again, it's not a course in apologetics, I promise, I promise. Schaeffer used this analogy, and I just want to sort of make sure we, we, we talk about it here just for a moment or two. He talked about sort of, uh, sort of the, the house as sort of our kind of, our intellectual, cultural environment. And it's divided into two stories, like any good house is. There's, a, there's an upper floor and a lower floor, Right? Again, this is all just sort of, it's in terms of metaphor, but I want you to sort of see this. He says that particularly in the West, in Western culture, we sort of, we stick certain things in certain compartments, certain floors, certain stories, right? And particularly these days, we have sort of the non-rational part of our lives, and we have the sort of the the reason-based part of our lives. Does this make sense? 
So certain things sort of belong in the, the non-rational, non-cognitive part. Down here we have the pieces of reason, of science, etc. Now again, I'm not criticizing science, it's a very good thing, happen to enjoy it myself. But here's what our culture teaches us. The upper story, it's all personal. That's for you, keep it to yourself. We don't really want to see it. You can have it, it's your right to have it. You can put, you can put anything you want up there, but it's yours and don't bring it out into, well, the public where we have the reason and the science and the, what do we have, the facts as opposed to the non-rational, the subjective. And let's be honest, what belongs up there? Well, any kind of faith or religion you might possess, any kind of, here I'm going to use an important word, any kind of values you may have, as opposed to facts. What's the difference between a fact and a value? Absolutely. How do you know a fact? Can you, can you measure it? Can you, can you weigh it? Take its temperature? What's it taste like? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly, right? And sometimes maybe it doesn't always work out that way. Now, here's a problem that just sometimes Christians have in just in the way we use words. We will sometimes talk about values, and we mean it like as it is fixed, like we talk about, for example, a more common phrase in the past than we maybe use today, family values. Those aren't negotiable. We usually, as Christians, use that term. But you understand, in the rest of the culture, when they hear the word values, they kind of hear variable. You get to pick the ones you want. And it's okay. And if mine are completely different, that's okay too. Because it's all in the upper story. It's all in this other section that's personal. It's yours. You can have it. I can have mine. We don't even have to talk about it. Or we can talk about it. But it doesn't affect it doesn't affect the public. It doesn't affect the science. It doesn't affect the facts. So when we have public discussions or when we enter into, I don't know, political decisions or, or anything that's important, you understand what I'm saying, right? Well, that's got to be based on facts. It's like being a lawyer or a pastor. Of course, you couldn't be both, right? <laughs> <laughs> I do apologize for that. It was just out of the blue. It just came to me. <clears throat> this does, I think, accurately reflect the culture we live in, though. And this explains some of this dualism. How is it that a person can, on Sunday, go to church, worship God, say some prayers, sing some songs, and mean it? Now, you understand, I'm not saying these people aren't believers. I don't think that, that Piercy's point was that Sarah wasn't a believer. She was. But the problem was that when she went out in the public, when she went to her job, when she went to vote, when she went to school, she could only engage in facts. She couldn't engage in values, at least as far as she was taught. Exactly. That's, that's exactly. The sacred... This, of course, let's be clear. This would be the... Yeah. Yes, shame on you. At your own risk, do you dare cross that? Now, again, can you really, as a Christian, can you lead a doctrine-free life? Can you lead a, a life where you keep all of the values, all of the sacred parts in private? You, you can't really. What, uh, you, you got, uh, those of you who, who are here at Christ Church, you hear me say this all the time. I know you're probably sick of it. But when Christ was asked, what's the greatest commandment? 
He actually gave two, right? So he didn't stop at one. First was, what was the first one? It's directed outward, right? You, you get outside of yourself. You go love God. And what's the second one? Love your neighbor. Neither one of those is you. You notice that? You can't sort of be within yourself. You can't just sort of, you can't really be a Christian hermit. You can't be isolated. And that's just, okay, that's, that's Christ's summary. He's given the two most important ones there. So much of what the, what the Bible consists of is us going out and serving other people. How do you be a light to the world when you're all alone by yourself? You can't do it. So we are being asked in our culture to do something that's impossible. We're being asked for, as a Christian, to take your Christian faith, stick it in a box, keep it to yourself. It's for your use at home, maybe a church on Sunday. Do not bring it in to any other realm. We don't want to see that. We can't do that. So when I say, to wrap up here, when I say that a study of theology, knowledge of theology, informs, must inform our behavior in every compartment, not just one or the other, what I'm saying to you is very dangerous because you're going to run into, across our entire culture, lots of resistance on that front. Exactly. That's exactly here. I'll even help you out. There we go. A good rancher is what we need, right? You can't. Not, not and be consistent with Scripture. But we'll spend a lot of time working on that. Is that pretty good, you think, so far? Excellent. All right. We're actually out of time, so we should probably stop here. But can we, can we pray together before we depart? Let's bow our heads together.